Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 334, Taking Jewish Risks. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And this week, we're excited to release our second episode in a three-part series that we recorded on the ground at Leachtag Commons, a Jewish community farm and education center operated by the Leachtag Foundation. Our guests today are the senior leadership of the Leachtag Foundation, Jim Farley and Charlene Seidel. We see the Leachtag Foundation as a new kind of Jewish foundation, dare we say, an unbound one, that's exploring new ways that a foundation might operate to best serve its community and to leverage its local work into national and international impact. Last week, we talked about the Leachtag Commons and the Hive, which are some of the innovative programs launched by and run by the Leachtag Foundation. And this week, we wanted to zoom out and explore the foundation's big picture thinking. Our conversation today will focus on the principles that drive the Leachtag Foundation, both its grant making and its broader work philanthropically and programmatically. But before we dive in, just a word about the history of the Leachtag Foundation, because we think it's part of the story. The Leachtag Foundation was established by Tony and Lee Leachtag and initially operated as a typical family foundation. But when Tony and Lee Leachtag passed away, they left basically their entire estate to the foundation and appointed their lawyer, our guest today, Jim Farley, to be the CEO of the foundation. Jim hired our second guest, Charlene Seidel, who had been working at the Jewish Community Foundation of San Diego. And together, they figured out how to build a foundation that always honored the Leachtag family's values and commitments, and also was a little unbound. Our first guest today is Jim Farley. He's the president and CEO of the Leachtag Foundation. Jim Farley is a longtime San Diegan who practiced law for 33 years before turning his attention to Jewish Foundation professional work. He serves as a member of the board of directors of the Jewish Funders Network and previously served as president of the board of Seacrest Village Retirement Communities and as a member of the board of governors of the San Diego Botanic Garden. Notably, and connected to this last position, Jim Farley is a passionate horticulturalist and, we should note, was a student in my fall and yeshiva class. Our second guest, Charlene Seidel, is the executive vice president of the Leachtag Foundation, where she is responsible for overall management and strategy development. Charlene Seidel was awarded the 2013 J.J. Greenberg Memorial Award, which is an international prize given to one outstanding philanthropic professional under the age of 40 each year. She is also on the board of the Jewish Funders Network and previously served as president and CEO of the Jewish Community Foundation of San Diego. Without further ado, Jim Farley, Charlene Seidel, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you, and it's especially great to be able to record with you at Leachtag Commons. We're so happy to be here. Really enjoyed listening to so many of your podcasts, and to think that we're going to have a conversation today is really exciting for both of us. 
Well, we're really excited about it too. It's been a long time coming. So what we really want to talk about at the beginning here is how when you're starting a new foundation, particularly in your circumstances, and it would be great to get a little bit of the story about how the Leech Dog Foundation got started. But my question is, how do you decide to do something differently from how everybody else is doing it? And how specifically did you decide to do things differently? What was your thinking in setting up the foundation? What I would say in response to the question is that I don't think we were intending to do anything different. Uh, What we were really trying to do is uh, honor the idea that uh, the leech tags had left 98% of their wealth to this community. And the team that was assembled was really far more interested in trying to figure out how to make that important, how to make a legacy that could last and that could be meaningful in a lot of different ways, but especially to the community that the leech tags sort of lived in and loved through their philanthropy for decades. The timing was also very interesting in that we became organized as an independent foundation right around 2008, around the time that the bottom was starting to fall out of the economy. The recession was hitting, people were hurting. And a lot of foundations were pulling back. And here we were just getting kind of our feet wet with philanthropy. We were organizing. And at that time, the board made a decision that really has set the course for the principles that we hold fast to today, which is that philanthropy is the risk capital of social change. And that if we are not taking risks to save people's lives... And to help those most in need, we're not doing our job as philanthropists. The leash tags themselves were raised in abject poverty. They lacked much formal education. They knew what it was like to need. Um, That also set the course for a culture of urgency that developed um, for our foundation that also continues to this day. It's why we're a limited life foundation, which means that we are going to have an end date. We will go away one day. We are not set up in perpetuity like some foundations are. We also really believe in, in really two core principles, among others. One is urgency. The second is in talent. Who are we to presume and to conserve resources and then hand over the same problems that we inherited or that we created in some cases to the next generation? Let us urgently seek to solve or at least really invest in solutions for for problems that hopefully diseases that will be cured by the time they come into being. And so... Taking risk doesn't mean that you just pursue without discipline and you run after every possible idea. It means investing in those who really understand and have been impacted by and have the lived experience of the real social ills that you're trying to address and really sharing the resources with them and disrupting the systems of power that would have the foundation sitting in an office studying, which is important, but coming up with the one perfect solution. It's saying that there is no one perfect solution. It's saying that those who have lived experience have 50 different lived experiences. And how can they each, how can we partner with each of those in order to learn from each of those and hopefully beta test it to the right solution or set of solutions? I am really interested in 
how you spoke about urgency. And I'm so I'm taking notes as we talk on a on a little notepad that is from the Leech Tag Foundation. And at the bottom there's a nice little signature and it it has sort of I think this is the mission statement, but igniting and inspiring vibrant Jewish life. And I think that there could be people listening or in dialogue with you who say, oh, well, like you're committed to like the urgent problems that need to be solved in the world. Like is Jewish life the most urgent problem in the world? Or like somebody could, somebody could challenge you and say like there are other more pressing needs. And I'm curious because I know that you're, you're committed very deeply to all sorts of the ills that are that, that we're facing right now. And I'm curious to talk a little bit about how that urgency that you talked about before connects with your commitment to Jewish life in particular. We're certainly guided by a family legacy. So when we got organized and when we developed the different aspects of our mission statement, we have four major strategic areas. The first, um, as mentioned, is igniting and inspiring Jewish life in North County. The second is alleviating poverty and increasing self-sufficiency, also in North County, San Diego, which is the region where the family lived and worked. The third is building strong connections based on shared interests in Israel and San Diego. And then the fourth is on the ground in Jerusalem, developing um, resiliency in civil society and better quality of life in Jerusalem. We were guided in part, well, in large part, by the family's interests, passions, vision, and they were committed Jews. They loved being Jewish in a multi-faith, diverse community. And we do see urgency around it. We live in a community in North County with um, with some really terrific Jewish presence. It's a community that about 80% of our community members are traveling through life with people who aren't Jewish. So they are married to people who aren't Jewish. They may be raising children who are being raised Jewish and other religions or, or have other circumstances, about 80%. About 8% of this community that we're serving are affiliated with a synagogue, a Jewish institution, or any kind of organized Jewish life, which means that 92% are not. So when we were faced with this and we thought about urgency and we thought about, okay, we are going to be here for a limited time only. How do we best reach these people? How do we best engage them with the Jewish community? We did a lot of listening. We feel like going back to the concept of risk, that yes, risk needs to be informed, but the way that we inform risk isn't necessarily by only studying a lot of intellectual thought pieces and position papers and reading articles. But the most important is to get out there and to listen to the experiences of those who are we are trying to, to serve, as I said before. And so we did a number of focus groups with Jews of all kinds in this community, of all ages, stages, those who were married to people who aren't Jewish, those who were Orthodox, are Orthodox, senior citizens, teenagers. And what we heard from them was that they do feel very proud of being Jewish, that the fact that they weren't members of a synagogue didn't take away for them from their feeling of being being proud to be Jewish, feeling in some cases not that welcomed by the organized Jewish community, 
in some cases feeling downright alienated by the Jewish community, but still wanting to be a part of that Jewish community. And so a lot of our work, I guess, where we see the urgency maybe of the problem or the challenge or the opportunity, where we see the urgent opportunity is in the area of belonging. And at this time when as sort of organized Jews, I can't tell you how much time I spend in meetings of people myself included sometimes, wringing their hands, worrying about the next generation, worrying about the shrinking tent, right? Maybe the tent is shrinking and maybe we are actually the ones that are making the borders of that tent or the canopy of that tent smaller and smaller instead of what we heard from the community that we found is a real desire to be part of the Jewish community. It was so encouraging. It wasn't this narrative of, well, this is no longer relevant. It might be that the forms or the context or the institutions that are actually relatively recent institutions, if you look over thousands of years of Jewish history, the synagogue, I mean, is such an important part in my own life. But it is one adaptation of Jewish meaning making and connection and belonging, because really that's what it's about. We see the issues around Jewish belonging as being very urgent because, especially if we are trying to create a better world for future generations, there's no better way to do that than to help people make meaning for themselves, for their own lives, and give them some tools and resources to do that. Yeah, you would say we have to act urgently. We've only got uh, how many more years to the Yovel? Let's. Uh, we were talking before the conversation started about how uh, maybe the Jubilee year, the Yovel year, maybe we could uh, mark that in 2049. I'm curious what you're getting at, though. To say more about, about that. Well, you know, uh, you'd say that the notion of uh, Maimonides' uh, uh, ideas for the Messianic Age, where we would have an environment where uh, the Shemitot and the Yovel were observed as part of the culture in a robust way as contemplated by the Torah, is sort of, you have to pursue that urgently because it affords us opportunities as a culture. We're not solving a problem so much as seeking a better way to do do what we do. And this sort of affords is not a sort of a roadmap and architecture for how to think about that and what kind of conversations to have to sort of make it relevant to our sort of modern uh, circumstances. So I'm curious about how the element of this foundation that includes a big piece of land came about. You know, most foundations make grants. And I guess my, I have a combined question, which is why did you decide not to just make grants to the JCC and synagogues and whoever else in the community? I mean, you do that too, I think. So I'm curious about, first of all, why did you create this physical place? And then I'm curious about how you think about allocating the, the funds and the attention between grant making and creating this environment that, that you've created. So from day one, before we even thought about physical property, we set forth 10 ways, they're on our website, 10 tools for giving. One of those is writing checks. One of those is making grants. It's a very important part of our strategy. We have other ways that we do that too. We provide tools, resources, training, abilities to the to next generation, young people, teens. We, we, we make impact investments. We 
We certainly do no harm through our investment portfolio, but we also make mission-aligned investing. We see physical space even before the acquisition of this 67-acre property that we now know as Leash Tag Commons. We see physical space as an important piece of that tool. Even before we acquired this, this property, we thought together, as we had a few grantees, a few grants that we had made, it would be really interesting for those grantees to learn from each other. And so we were in an office building and we rented the small office down the hall from us and we set up a small co-working space because we want to use every single tool, every single um, lever at our disposal in order to go back to solving those problems or addressing those problems that we were talking about. It includes our voice. I try to think about points that I want to make because I know that my voice might be listened to a little bit more than others sometimes because of my fortunate position, my privileged position in the seat of as a foundation professional. The foundation mission doesn't really relate to physical space as much as it does to addressing the areas that we seek to really impact and to really influence. When we undertook the consideration of acquiring this property. Initially, we thought, because of our funding in the neighborhood and our relationship to Seacrest Village, the San Diego Hebrew home, which is a block away from Leachstead Commons, largest Jewish organization in San Diego County, came up here in the early 80s. But it houses 280 primarily Jewish folks or integrated with a Jewish community in some meaningful way um, that are uh, living out their lives in really a tremendous environment, very proud of it. We thought that what we could do in this neighborhood is supplement that with about 20 acres of senior housing here. Uh, they had this idea that we'd have about 45 acres left over thereabouts to really experiment with. And I think the big idea for the way I would look at this, the way it's evolved over the years that we've been here, I would say that it's become an agriculturally inspired laboratory for Jewish life and uh, community development. And I think what the platform and runway has done, it's attracted some of the most interesting Jewish professionals that are taking us to the edges and depths of Judaism in such interesting ways, and it gives them a sort of a a place to see if that can work in a meaningful way. And and look, I would just say the professionals, you've heard the story, the professionals have endeavored to meet the community where it was at, and I think that's what we're observing here. I don't want to be too certain because, frankly, Let's observe that this is brand new. This has just started. We're learning, and I don't want to. There, no one should take from what we say that we have any confidence that we're at the end or know how to do this better than anybody else. What inspired the acquisition of the property were the focus groups that we did with members of this North County San Diego Jewish community even though many of them maybe didn't belong to Jewish institutions and they were saying that we want to belong that we want we want a Jewish place they also talked about their interests what they cared about they talked about feeling very connected to the land caring about their health and the health of their neighbors 
wanting to have a place where their children could learn about what they eat and not think that a tomato started in a supermarket shelf, caring about social justice, praying with their feet. They talked about a place that would be welcoming and inclusive. We were super encouraged by that because what they talked about wasn't going shopping every weekend or going to Legoland. They were talking about fundamentally Jewish concepts as they were talking about their feelings of insecurity with regard to being Jewish. So many times I've heard, well, I'm Jewish, but I'm not really Jewish. And I don't think they meant halakhically Jewish, Jewish by the definition of Jewish law. What they meant was, well, I don't fast on Yom Kippur, or I don't pray every week, or I don't light candles. Whatever somebody had told them, or they had told themselves, which is often the case, was the prescription for being Jewish. They weren't good enough, and they weren't making it, so they maybe felt a little bit insecure. This piece of real estate was a place where people don't have to bifurcate their identities, where it's through a Jewish lens, but it doesn't mean that only Jews are welcome here, and where you don't have any kind of specific knowledge needed to enter this place, but also, I hope, where Judaism and our rich, rich Jewish traditions aren't, forgive the expression, but aren't dumbed down. We know we are working with smart, sophisticated people. We don't need to oversimplify things. This is a place where everything can exist together. Yeah, yeah, wow. First off, in terms of not dumbing down, I was just outside walking around, got a great tour with you. There's like quotes from Maimonides' guides for the perplexed on signs in Hebrew, English, and Spanish. Like, this is not dumbed down. There's deep material of Jewish tradition, like, literally all over the place on this property, and it's very inspiring to me. Um, I don't know, there's something about just, like, seeing a bunch of vegetables or flowers surrounded by, like, reasoning behind why they should be there and why Jews should be thinking about those things on, you know, quotations on signs. Like it's lived and alive. Um, neither of you said something that I guess to me, maybe it's, maybe you're so deep in this that you don't even think about it anymore. But like, I don't know, it's pretty, right? Like this is a beautiful place. Well, think and, about yeah, You are in the epicenter of what was the flower capital of the world. The largest floriculture organization in the world is a tenant here in 400,000 feet. And mm -hmm. they create beauty in people's lives as the main thrust of their business. Right. And, and, and that matters, right? Like the, the beauty matters is what I think I'm getting at. And I, I, maybe that's the simplest thing to say on the planet and like the least insightful thing to say on the planet. But I guess from my perspective, there's, there's a principle coming to mind called in Hebrew, hidur mitzvah, like the beautification of a commandment. If you talk to book publishers who write, who make Jewish books, like some of them are really intentional about what the covers look like. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but like it should be pretty because you want to like entice people to engage with deep spiritual material through beauty. I walk around here and the lived Judaism is, it smells nice. It looks nice. It's fun. Like for people, I, I, I resonate deeply with that 80% that you described, right? Like I'm not, I'm, I'm a rabbi. I'm actually not a synagogue member. Like that's not because I don't love Judaism. It's because institutionally there are not places near me that I have found like deeply mine, but like walking in a beautiful farm feels like a place where Judaism can come alive and, and life can come alive for maybe not everybody, but for a lot of people. And so I guess, can you talk a little bit about like what happens to people 
when they are here. And to what extent did you intend that? Were you thinking like, ah, yes, we're going to create this place and people are going to experience these six things and it's going to deepen their Jewish identity, whatever. And to what extent is it just like we're in a pretty environment and we're trusting that Jews and their loved ones and others will spend time here and just deepen their relationship to the world? The place is beautiful, but it's not manicured. It's an authentic environment. It's a place of nature, outdoors, which is where we also often, I know I have my best spiritual experiences outdoors when I can look at the ocean, which you can see from this property and really think about, you know what, like this world is truly awesome, you know, in every sense of that word. And I guess I was thinking about the old Jewish story about the two pieces in, in your piece, pieces of paper in each pocket about the world is created for me and I am but a speck of dust. And I think that that is actually like a paradigm of being at this place because the beauty, I, it's, it's beautiful, but like I said, it's not manicured, it's not manufactured. And there are some very industrial elements. I mean, there's 900,000 square feet of greenhouses, there's active agriculture going on here, and that doesn't look like, you know, an ornamental garden. Um, but I think it's really real. And I think that especially in this age, people are really looking for that real kind of experience. And they're looking for that opportunity to think about themselves in the context of the larger world. And I think that the ability to, to look at the ocean, to be outdoors, to be in a place that food is growing and that life is really happening, where chickens are laying eggs, that gives them that experience. So I'm curious if we could talk about some of the foundation's grant making and other projects. And I'm particularly curious, I mean, I'd love to know how you go about that, but I'm also in particular curious about how running your own projects and your own farm, uh, and I mean, this, this whole comment, like, does that, do you think that that makes you a different kind of grant maker than a foundation that isn't also operating and, and, and working on its own projects at such a large scale? We have a requirement on our staff that everybody needs to have experience on the other side of the table, asking for money, working for NGOs, working for organizations, because we're in a really fortunate position here that we have the resources to to pursue a lot of the change strategies that it's not that we have I don't think better or the, even the best ideas. It's we're, we're in an incredibly privileged position and really humbled by that. So when we acquired this 67-acre property, one of the things that we did know that we wanted to do, we wanted to develop talent around this place. One of the ways that we announced we were going to do it is we created a what was called the Jewish Food Justice Fellowship, where we brought seven young people in their 20s. They had some background in certainly some passion around food justice, around food security, around farming as a tool for education. And their goal was also, in addition to being placed in work assignments, to advise and to be a brain trust for this foundation in how to develop plans around the property. 
We also said that we were going to create a new nonprofit, a Jewish community farm, based on models like Urban Adama, Isabella Friedman, Pearlstone, others. We were Eden Village. We were so fortunate in our colleagues from the Jewish farming world really opening their their homes, their farm homes to us. And so we created that as a separate nonprofit. So while we were seeding that Coastal Roots Farm, which is now about a third of the 67-acre, a little less than a third of the 67-acre, ultimately they were and are a grantee. And so we keep the grant-making side of the house very integrated with the program development side of the house. Grant-making is both a tool in developing programs and collaborations, a way that we can provide some added incentives and levers in order to get people the resources that they need in order to kind of take on ownership. But also we really look at when we do create programs, and it's been very few and far between. We did we did create the farm. It's now we're very, very proud, pretty independent of us financially. We started off providing 100%. It was our major grantee of the farm's budget. We're now about 30% we will be this year. And we look at that, it's a it's seven, about seven years after they were incorporated. Um, and then we have a co-working space called the Hive at Least High Commons. Those are really the only programs that we run. And the Hive at Least High Commons is all about supporting talent, providing professional capacity building, professional development, resources to grantees. And we try to break a lot of the traditional power dynamics between funder and grantee. We don't, we work with each individual grant recipient organization on what is the best kinds of reporting ways. Does it make sense for us to have a conversation every once in a while? Do you want to file a report? We certainly don't want you you spending precious and scarce dollars on providing reports to us that are just going to be put on files. We want to have a conversation together. We want to know when you learn because we're looking to learn too. And so we want to kind of course correct together. But if something doesn't work out, it probably won't work out exactly like you said it would in a proposal. That would probably be a bad sign. We just want to have the conversation so that we're all learning in real time, transparently and together. It's also important uh, to keep in mind that based on the focus group work that was done, a determination, uh, this might seem obvious, but a determination was made that the things that this community was seeking to find couldn't be found elsewhere. You had to create it. And we had a lot of uh, ability to fund the talent that could make this work based on that information. And so it seemed like an obvious idea that we could move that needle. Jim, a while ago when we did a series of episodes where we talked to Jewish farmers, you and I had a conversation and you said we should really make the distinction between Jewish farmers and community farms, community farming that comes from a Jewish point of view. Um, can you say more about what that distinction is and why you think it's so important? Well, I think some really interesting and wonderful things are happening in the Jewish world around the farming conversation. I think it's been really interesting to see the young people that it's attracted, the kind of conversations around values in their lives and how they can be expressed in a farming environment and through the filter of these rich Jewish traditions that we all are so taken with. And I 
love the idea that a Jew would sort of uh, look at farming as an idea of expressing their uh, Judaism through their life's work in that in endeavor. I don't look at a community farm as a place where that happens. It can be a place where you get very incredible, incredibly skilled set of farmers. And I think we do have an amazing group of farmers at Coastal Roots. The farmer and the community farm are not necessarily found in the same place. The community farm is first and foremost, the Jewish community farm is first and foremost, an incredible platform for Jewish education. No one's talking that I hear in nomenclature around community farm. I do a Google search every day. I get information on community farms. And usually what you end up with are articles that talk about community gardens. Well, in a community farm, you have a place, and think about it, and farms, by the way, were the connective tissue in Jewish life after the Second Temple. That's where all our life was done and through as sort of the farm environment. The farm is a tool for Jewish education. As I said uh, to folks that uh, recently that have uh, toured the farm, where 70% of the produce that is grown is being distributed into vulnerable communities and the balance is being sold through a pay-what-you-can farm stand that serves this community in some incredible ways. The most important thing that's grown on the farm are the children in the farm camp. And the second most important thing that a community farm grows, in my opinion, are what we call the community farmers, these young education professionals. That's what they are. They're Jewish teachers. And I think that is really the essence of what happens in a community farm. You know, farms like public gardens, you know, folks look at a farm and they say, oh, people grow food there. Farms are much more about places that grow people than people growing the food. The education director at the community farm, the curriculum is being delivered by a group of educators that take, a, and there's a quantum of Jewish lesson planning for the farm that's been done through the Jewish farming community, has created its own curriculum. It's got a really interesting Shemitah source book. You folks have talked about it in some of your conversations. And from that, we have really compelling curriculum for that program. That said, I think one of our incredible opportunities in the Jewish world is to attract what would what we would say would be the best-in-class curriculum master that could articulate a curriculum that might not only work better for younger, and I think we've done a good job with that, but we're embarking upon efforts to do this with adults. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And we can come up with some interesting curriculum if we have the right expertise and the right folks with their eye on that ball. So I'm thinking about if I'm listening to this conversation and I'm an existing foundation or maybe I'm a family thinking about a similar thing that, you know, we want to consider putting our money in, into something that might turn into a foundation like this one day, but they aren't in San Diego. And, you know, it's not the most beautiful climate in the world and it's not the best flowers, you know, ever made. Uh, and, you know, it's a colder place or whatever it might be. What can be derived from your experience running this foundation? 
and using the tools that, you know, I don't know what the, the, the uh, adjective form of paradise is, the paradisical tools that you happen to have here and, and created this extraordinary place. But, but what, what does this really mean? What is really the meaning of the way that you have gone forward with a kind of a relatively unspecific legacy desire from the family, right? They, you talked about they have certain things that they prioritize, but they didn't really dictate the direction that the foundation was going to go, unlike many other donors of a large foundation. And you took that and you created something quite different from what, what exists out there. So how? Uh, so I would love to hear you talk as much as you want about how it is different and what your your approach is. And, and then specifically, how does that translate to uh, other foundations that will, will, I worry, sort of dismiss it and say, well, we're not in San Diego, so we can't have a farm. So I guess we'll tune out of this one. I don't think it's about the farm. I think the three elements to potentially consider, there's probably more, four, four elements, are the risk thinking about risk and just really thinking about being very, very risk tolerant. Just the same way in a business when you're have when you're in a startup, you have to invest in R and D, you have to really be open to all kinds of new thoughts. You can't be tied to one particular way of thinking Philanthropy is the only sector, especially philanthropy like us, which is private philanthropy, independent philanthropy. We have so many fewer stakeholders than government does. We have so many fewer stakeholders in a more communal philanthropy model. If we're not taking the risk, then shame on us. And so I would encourage others to think the same way, to think similarly about risk and to really consider taking a very risk tolerant approach which does tie into urgency because it means that, yes, you know, this is something that you should be waking up thinking about, going to sleep. There's an urgency in spending the money that means that you have to study, you have to be disciplined, but you can't afford to spend all your time in analysis paralysis because if you looked for the least risky solution, then that's probably not going to be the boldest one that will actually work. So that's the second, the risk, the urgency, the talent, identifying the talent around you that have experience with the problem that you're addressing and supporting them in every single way, whether it's providing resources to other organizations for their professional development or just for their infrastructure. The world of um, nonprofit, I mean, it's the only sector that's defined by something it's not, right? Nonprofit, it doesn't even make sense. And so because of that, concepts like overhead have become a four-letter word, you know, and and isn't what I would really encourage other philanthropists to think about what is really going to support that talent the most. Is it the latest shiny new thing or is it actually some professional development for this for the team to be able to themselves think about new ways more creatively? And the fourth area is not presuming to think that you know about the experience of the of those in the fields that you are trying to address. I would encourage um, philanthropists, foundations, really anybody at any level seeking to make a difference through financial resources in particular, to look at those four factors, risk, urgency, talent, and listening to lived experience in crafting philanthropy plans. Joffy Outdoor Educators, 
That stands for Jewish Outdoor Food, Farming, and Environmental Education. They're very important to this conversation. And I think that if you were sort of looking at where this can be meaningful in a larger conversation, my response would be, and we've had communities that have approached us that have no uh, program similar to this that are really looking for it and even voice some element of desperation about it. A very important idea is that land is so important to the way we educate around so many ideas that you've got to have some physical space to do it. It may be at a synagogue. It may be at the J. It may be in a place you hadn't thought about. You don't need a farm of the size of Coastal Roots Farm to have a very important impact in local Jewish community. I I don't think that's a necessary ingredient. There's too many examples of where we have small platforms, look at Berkeley, that are so important to the communities that they're in. Then I would just say generally to folks of wealth that are trying to impact to figure out how to provide land, even in this real estate environment, when you consider the return, if you want to add up all the connections that we've had here in the last 10 years, all the Jewish life that's been lived in our space, what's that been worth? It's creating a momentum to grow a different kind of community. In terms of momentum, in terms of building momentum for the future, I think both of you have spoken beautifully about that. I, I'm zooming out just to, you know, our podcast's kind of mantra or ongoing conversation about the paradigm shift that we're experiencing Jewishly and generally. And I was just curious if you want to talk about um, earlier today, you mentioned the history of adaptation that characterizes Judaism. And I think that actually dovetails really nicely with how you've both spoken about risk. The conversations you're directing towards, you know, other philanthropies or sort of towards our society about how we need to not be afraid of risks. I think that's so important for Jews to hear, whether that's like people who work in Jewish life and are deciding whether to go for that next big crazy risk or to be safer, or if you're just a Jew in the pew. Right. Like there's actually people that are listening to us who might not have like a, a pulpit or a position who could take a risk to create something new Jewishly as well. And so I guess I was curious to just see, um, are there ways that you might weave together um, these risks that you're encouraging philanthropies to take with risks that we might take Jewishly to build the next Judaisms? I was just reading an article about how innovation usually happens like from those insiders that are sort of on the fringes of the group, like if that, if, like maybe the insider outsiders are a little bit. And I think that that is really resonant when we look at our history of Ju of Jewish tradition. I mean, we don't, we have like a set of ideas and we have a set of traditions and we have a set of values and we have laws, but we don't have, we have some rituals. Like I said, we don't have prescriptions in terms of institutions as much. But I think what I took from that fringes of the inside is that you can't be so committed to the containers of Jewish life to be able to really maybe create some adaptations or disruptive adaptations. But you also can't be totally non-knowledgeable about those. You have to have a blend. 
for those who are looking as um, people that just want to partake in Jewish life, those who are seeing this terrible jargon phrase like prosumers, producing consumers, but those who may not want to lead but balance some degree of knowledge with a healthy skepticism or at least not a definitive orthodoxy, which I was a little O, not a big O, towards the exact ways that that knowledge and that body of tradition and that body of values is going to get carried out. Whenever we've been at our best, it's because we've kept the problems or our strategic areas in the center and not any one tool or program or intervention. That's whenever we can go back to, okay, what are we actually trying to do? What are we trying to advance? Um, We've always been at our best. Thank you both so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. It was such a pleasure. It is so much fun, and I can't look... I won't listen to this one because you're not supposed to listen to yourself. That's what (laughs) all the famous people say. So I'm not going to listen to this, but I'm going to tell you, I'll be listening to all your other podcasts. Thank you so much, both of you. And uh, even though Jim isn't listening, we're grateful to all of you out there for listening to him, to Charlene, and to us. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and that you'll tune in again with us in the future. We want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. Second, you can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And third, you can always email us at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. And you can do that via a one-time gift or a monthly recurring donation by heading to judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.